On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about priorities, election priorities, specifically Hamilton's election priorities. City of Hamilton with the mayor, council, and the city manager put out their list of what the five main things are they want to get out of this federal election. We'll talk about what those are. We're also talking about patients. There's a new study out and it's not encouraging. In fact, by the time I'm finished talking about this, you're probably already impatient with me if you fall into the category of the study. Get to the point! Get to the point! Well, that's kind of the whole idea. We are an impatient people now. We're going to talk about why. And back to the federal election, you will be seeing editorial cartoons left, right, and center for the next 40 days or 39 or 38 days. Graham McKay, editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator, the best editorial cartoonist in Canada, joins us to talk about what are the identifying characteristics that he can exaggerate and make fun of in editorial cartoons over the run of this campaign. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The city came out just before noon today as the election starts to ramp up. The city came out with its list of five priorities that it would have for the federal election. I'll tell you what they are in just a second, but I want to bring in someone that the music was uh, was relevant because uh, joining me, something we, someone we don't get on here nearly enough onto this show, this is Bill Kelly of the morning show, Bill Kelly. Bill, how are you? Uh, that's copyright infringement. I'm still trying to how find doing, my, Daddy? I'm still trying to and find my way, own Daddy, version of by that. By the way, you're fabulous. Why, thank you. That's, um, that, well, I'll take it. Thank you. And I'm uh, more than a little jealous. You know, have got Graham McKay on. I haven't had Graham on for a long time. Grant, Graham and Michael Deatter are the two best political uh, satirists and, and sketch in, in the in the country, if not in the world. I mean, they're, they're, they're brilliant. We, they're, he's we he's take, always a lot of fun. We take for granted, I think, in Hamilton how good Graham is at what he does, because he. Re- I agree with you. He absolutely is. And uh, you just have to look at the editorial cartoons around the country, and you see how much better his are than almost yeah. everybody. Yeah. All right, Bill. So we've got the election, day two of the election. We've only got 39 more days to fill content with. But um, thankfully, the city of Hamilton handed <laughs> us... a lot of chances here. Well, do. and the city handed us one today because this is this is an interesting one. I didn't know this was coming. I don't remember them doing this before. I'm sure no, they did. I there on the show today. didn't mention anything about it. Okay, well, perfect, then. That's why we wanted you on here. Uh, so the, the press release says, through collaboration with the federal government, there is opportunity to achieve Hamilton's five priorities. Let's go through what the five priorities are. And by the way, it says this is a collective effort between the mayor, councillors, and the city manager's office. So they've all apparently gotten together and decided what our priorities are. And I don't think these are in any particular order. We'll just go through them in the order they give us. Sure. Number one, modernizing the federal municipal relationship. I'm not even sure I know what that means. Um, okay. Could you be more vague? Exactly. That, that, I don't, I'm, I'm looking at, this is the first priority you've put down there and I'm sure that they could give us a good explanation for what it is, but I don't have a clue what that well, actually if means. I'm reading between the lines, that means give us more money. Is that modernizing? I would sure. think modernizing. Words, we want more money. But isn't modernizing now? Every government is saying we want to save some money. The modernizing would be cutting it back. No, 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 no. They want, <laughs> they want more money, federal money. For things, uh, well, you know what the list is like, infrastructure and everything else. Modernizing, it means stop giving us 20th century solutions to 20, 21st century problems. Okay, so... Why didn't they ask us to write this, Scott? Yeah, no kidding. And by the way, you know what should have been number one on the list, perhaps, and though the city could never actually say this? Make sure we elect more politicians from a party that's in power so we have a chance to get some voice around the table. When's the last time we did that? 
Like, look, I, I, I am a huge fan of democracy. I believe people should vote for who they choose to vote for. I'm not arguing that we should be banning parties or anything stupid like that. But, I mean, this time we have two uh, politicians for the NDP. Last time we had three. And look, vote for the NDP. I'm not arguing against it. But sometimes, Bill, it seems like we're beating our head against the wall because it's either the liberals or the conservatives in power. And we rarely have many voices around the table. I'll give you a quick story here, okay? And uh, this is going back a few years to a former Hamilton mayor who was up in Ottawa, uh, obviously trying to get some of this sort of assistance. And he approached a, a long-standing NDP member and said, look, at, this is what we need. These are things we really need you to work for this. And his answer was, what do you expect me to do? I'm a third party. I can't do anything for you. Well, thanks for coming out. That was really nice. You know, not like, yeah, I'll do my best or I'll talk to That That was the answer. <laughs> When you, when you elect people that are consistently in the third party, and, and I understand, people are going to vote for whoever they're going to vote for, and they'll have their own reasons for it. But you know what? When we when we consistently elected uh, government officials and, and people like John Monroe and Sheila Copps and Tony Valeri and Stan Keyes... Stuff happened. And, and we got... Stuff happened here. You know, there was... There's, and that happens not just in Hamilton. It happens in every state. Of course. It happens in Toronto. It happens in Vancouver. It happens in Ottawa. It happens in Montreal. If you elect members that, that are members of the government... And you got a pretty good shot of getting some assistance. If you don't, you usually get second. You know, you get the scraps, and 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 that's that's somewhat problematic. Well, look right now. Look at Alberta, which is entirely blue. If you look there federally, or pretty much entirely blue. How much help are they getting from the government right now, the federal government, over the last few years? Uh, well, in between, you know, the prime minister trying to fend off some of the things that Jason Kenney saying about him, probably nothing. Yeah, and because then, it's an antagonistic relationship. Same things happening here with Doug Ford and, and the prime minister. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go down to Toronto, you look at the electoral map from 2015, so the federal map, and it's very, very, very red with some other orange in it and a little bit of blue, but that's why Toronto gets stuff. They've got so many liberal members who are there sitting around the table fighting for Toronto. That and the fact it's and, the and biggest I'm not, city. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not killing for the liberals saying, hey, you vote liberal or whatever else. But I'm saying, this, this, let's cut to the quick here, Scott, okay? This is a two-horse race. Uh, there are people that support the Green Party. God bless you. There are people that vote NDP. We know that from the track record here in Hamilton. But this is a race between the conservatives and the liberals. And if you want you want any kind of a voice up there, then I'm suggesting you vote for whichever one of those two parties you think is going to form the government. We'll find out October 21st which one it is. But if you consistently vote for a party that has no sway and has minimal respect on, on the committees because they have minimal members, and they, they, they're the third party, so they get the smallest amount of time in question period, and all they do is rant and rave. That doesn't get anything done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the federal election, which is now into day two, because the city of Hamilton today put out their 2019 federal priorities, five things that the mayor, the council, and the city manager have collaborated to come together with to say these are Hamilton's five priorities for whomever gets into power in the next election. Bill Kelly of the Bill Kelly Show is on with us talking about this. And Bill, uh, the first one was modernizing the federal municipal relationship, which you, I think, appropriately translated as give us dough. Yeah. Uh, number two, new funding tools, which I would interpret as give us dough again. Do you sense a theme here? <laughs> I'm getting to the theme. But yeah, new funding tools, which again is we need more money. And do we disagree with that? Do we disagree that Hamilton needs money? I don't. Well, every city needs money. And, and, and in defense of the, the city's requests here and, and just about every city, uh, Canada is lagging behind every G7 nation when it comes to helping out municipalities. 
you know, it, it, uh, the brief history here, of course, when this country was formed all these many years ago, I think about 75% of the people lived in rural areas, and the other 25% lived in cities. Well, it's like 85% live in rural areas now, and the other 15% live in cities. Uh, but they haven't changed the funding formula. Uh, yeah, there's money for gas tax, for transit, and stuff like that. But every other G7 nation has a national transportation plan. They have money for public transit. Uh, and it's not just, oh, here's a couple of million dollars. We're going to dole this out. It's, it's going to be there no matter what. Give us a legitimate pl- program, and we'll fund it. Canada doesn't do that yet. It's still one-off programs. So cities like Hamilton and, and it's just about every other city, they can't plan five years into the future because they don't know if there's going to be any money there for the programs they want to do. So th- this is a legitimate beef. And, and I agree. I don't care who's in government, they've got to get their acting. Well, and part of the reason why there is no money for the cities, I would argue, is because every one of the federal leaders is running around making promises of billions of dollars. So by the time we actually get around to governing, there's no money left for cities because of all these programs the federal government is centralizing for themselves. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, number and, and keep in mind, by the way, and this is just a, a, a reality, and if I'm ruffling feathers, uh, too bad, so sad. Perfect. Uh, any government that says I'm going to reduce your taxes means we're going to reduce the, the services, uh, okay? Or we're going to do the, the help that cities are going to get. If they have less income in, they're not going to spend money on anything else. And that means there's going to be a shortfall, and that means it's going to fall on the cities, which means it's going to increase your property taxes. So don't get fooled by that. Uh, number three, you just touched on it a moment ago, uh, predictable transit funding. This, of course, I would think is a bit of a sore point here in the city of Hamilton, certainly with the LRT. Now, we have yeah. we have presumably a billion dollars, we still believe, but who knows what the LRT actual cost will be, so I can understand why they want predictable transit funding. Give us more, again, the theme. Uh, number four, housing affordability. Again, a, a legitimate, a good thought. I'm just looking at some of the things that have been done around the country to try and, other than just buying and creating affordable housing, to do things to try and control the market or tamp it down a little bit. None of them have worked with any great success. No, no. And we are, by the way, the only G7 nation that does not have a national housing strategy. Even the Americans, with all their debt problems, have a national housing strategy. I mean, you know, that's a legitimate point. They've got to get their act together. They're, They're putting... This started about 15 years ago, and both governments are, are guilty here, both the federal and provincial governments, of simply saying it's going to be the municipality's problem. How stupid is that? Well, and so I look at this, and I think, again, I'm with the city. Housing affordability certainly is becoming a big, big issue in the city of Hamilton. I just don't know what you are hoping that the federal government is going to do, short of perhaps building billions of dollars worth of affordable housing units in a, in a city like this and others. I, I don't know what the other option is. Well, I mean, there, there are possibilities here. You know, we've talked about this on the program about, you know, partnerships with private sector, incentives for private sector to build affordable housing. Uh, right now, you know, if, if I'm a, a builder right now, the question i got to ask is, look, I'm in the business to make money. What's in it for me if I do this? So, you know, the, the government's got to help out here. And it might just be in the way of subsidies or uh, different things like that. But there are options right now, but they don't even seem to want to talk about it. But isn't there blowback in a lot of quarters, a lot of progressive quarters against that? Because developers are evil people, Bill. Yeah, well, that's a myth that I think has to be debunked right now. Because, look, at we need development. We need that kind of investment. And, and look at what's happened downtown, Scott, in the last 10 years here in Hamilton. Uh, sorry, guys, those are developers. Uh, you know, that decided we're going to invest here. And we've seen condos come up. We've seen new buildings come up. We've seen growth come up. It's a good thing if as long as they work hand in hand. There have been some examples where that hasn't happened. And you know, I talked to, you know, Mayor Ward in, in, in Burlington. You know, they've had some OMB challenges because of developers that don't want to work with the city. But don't paint everybody with the same brush. Look, at, I, I spent a number of years on council and all of those years on planning. Uh, there are 
one or two bad apples, three or four bad apples, whatever, in planning and in, in developers. The other ones, they want to work because they want to they want to make their their community grow. And we've seen some great examples of that here in Hamilton. But but again, you can't do it all at the municipal level. There's got to be some other assistance. That's a legitimate point. And number five on the list, disaster mitigation and adaptation support, which I will interpret once again as give us more money. Yeah, and, and that might be a smack at the Ford government for cutting back the flood control funding and, and the Conservation Authority funding. Uh, we have seen examples over the last 10 years where we have had what they used to call 100-year storms. Uh, now they're 100-hour storms. You know, we, about every 100 hours we have another one. I had another one last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, it, and it happens, and it's causing flooding and floodplains. It's causing flooding in basements. Uh, and, and governments don't seem to be understanding that. And, and now I know this is a, a call to the federal government, but, I mean, you know, the provincial government's got a role to play here, too. I, I found it more than ironic that two days after he announced he was uh, Ford announced he was going to cut the funding for conservation flood control, uh, he was up in Ottawa, you know, surveying the flood control. Hello? Why do you think this happened? Uh, you know, the, the governments have got to wake up and just, there's more, we talked about this on the show today. Listen, governments want to say, well, we're going to reduce our spending, we're going to reduce our deficits, we're going to reduce your taxes. That means they're going to spend less money, and that means some of the services that we count on and think need to be done aren't going to get done. And I'm not suggesting, hey, we should pay taxes right through the nose, but I'm just saying you, we should be, we've got this wrong. We're saying we want to control the bottom line so you have a better life. But you're not going to have a better life because you're going to say, well, where's my health care? Where's this? Where's this? Where's my education? How come my kid doesn't have an education assistant anymore? Well, we're saving money. We need to work backwards and say, what do we need here and pay for it? And, and we're not doing that. We're simply saying, look at the bottom line. Let's cut the bottom line. That is Bill Kelly. You can hear him 9 to 12 every morning. He'll be on tomorrow. Maybe even talking about this. Who knows? Uh, Bill, thank you for your time. Appreciate it as always. Scotty, always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a survey that was just published. It was done in Britain recently. And as I say, the results just came out. And it was examining people's levels of patience. In 2019, how patient a society are we? Britain, Canada, U.S., I'm reasonably sure that we can apply one to the other. We're probably not all that much difference in a lot of these things. And what do you think the results showed? Anybody? Anybody? Yep, we have none. We have no patience for anything. Most people, this study found, are incredibly impatient. And when I say incredibly, well, consider some of the facts that they came out with, some of the numbers they came out with. People apparently, according to this report, begin getting agitated if they have to wait 16 seconds for a web page to load. That will set them off. 16 seconds. 25 seconds will cause people to start losing their minds if they're at a traffic light waiting for it to change. If you pull up Netflix or Crave or something else on your computer and want to stream a show or a movie, if it takes more than 22 seconds, you are probably breaking into a cold sweat and feeling agitated. And if you have to go looking for a pen somewhere, 18 seconds was the amount of time people were able to do that before they got really, really put off. Makes me wonder what has happened. What has happened? We didn't know. We weren't always like this, I am sure. Uh, someone who may know the answer. Her name is Dr. Sarah Schnitker. She's an associate professor of psychology at Baylor University in Texas. And she is someone who is regularly sought out as an expert on the topic of patients. Uh, Dr. Schnitker, thanks for doing this today. Yes, thank you for having me. Before we get into this, I must say, when the day ever comes that someone calls me up and says, I need you to speak as an expert, the idea that I might be an expert in patience seems like something that I should strive for. 
<laughs> That's a great one to be an expert in. Yes. At least the science of it, maybe not the practice. All right, because I've never been accused. No one's ever going to call me up and say, hey, talk about patience, Scott. That's that's not a big no. thing for me. Uh, listen, there was a time when we would wait for a week for a letter to be sent from your parents to you or two weeks for a letter to come from overseas or whatever else. Now, if our email doesn't open up instantaneously, we start to lose our minds about this kind of stuff. What What's happening to us? Well, you know... <laughs> This is a question I often get in regard to my research is, are we becoming less patient? Why is this happening? What's going on? Um, so I think, first of all, you know, in some ways we are becoming less patient, um, but in other ways we aren't necessarily. So our expectations are really what's shifting. Um, so people used to be when they had to wait a week but if an extra week happened, then they would get upset. So when I study patients, hmm. it's about how you react internally and externally when your expectations are violated um, in relation to waiting or suffering. Um, now, we definitely see those expectations that we think things should happen faster and faster. Um, but you still find that some people, okay, we've passed that 18 seconds or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, they're able to regulate and still stay calm, whereas others are swearing and throwing things at the TV or the computer. Um, and so in some ways we are getting less patient, but in others um, it's just that our expectations are shifting. Well, and those expectations, the, the, the authors of this study are clearly blaming technology as a large driving part of this. And I think if we're going to go down that road and with what you're just saying, technology has created the expectation now that things are going to happen quickly. Yes. It has. Um, and, you know, there's quite a bit of research, too, showing it's not just patients that's being affected. Um, there was one study that came out a couple of years ago that found just having your smartphone on the table when you're talking to someone else can actually decrease your empathy for them. <laughs> wow. Um, so there's some issues we see with our technology. Um, but I think it's not just bad news. Um, I think technology is like any other tool um, that it can erode character strengths like patience or empathy, but it could also be used to build it. Um, and so actually my team noticing this relation between technology and maybe deteriorating patients, we've actually been working to build a smartphone app that might actually build patience in teenagers. By making it run slower? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great way. What we did is we actually... Um, tried to give strategies that people could use when they're in an interpersonal conflict and someone else, especially another person, was really trying their patient. So anyone who's got a spouse, I'm sure they've experienced this at one point or another, right? This person's frustrating right now or a family member or a boss and saying, okay, what can you do to try to become more patient right now with this person? Um, could you try thinking about it from their perspective can you try doing some breathing exercises? Because there really are things that we can do to help ourselves. We aren't doomed to fail here. And our technology is not doomed to make us worse. If we use it the right way, it can help improve things. Is impatience a learned response? Yes and no. Um, you know, I think people naturally like things immediately. So most everyone, I would say, is children. If you've hung out with children recently, I don't think it's, it's pretty natural for them to be impatient. It's really patience that we have to learn. Um, we have to learn how to be calm in the face of frustration and suffering and waiting. 
Um, and really, it's I think sometimes we don't teach patients very well anymore. Um, it's very easy to be impatient. It's hard to be patient. And that's, you just touched on a word there. We don't, I don't think, teach patients, but I don't know where we would or how we could or what the circumstance would be that this would be something that would be a teaching opportunity. You know, I think there's lots of little ways, though, we can do it. So I have a three-year-old. <laughs> and <laughs> So you're right in the heart of learning patients. I am in the heart of it right now. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you. Um, but there's little things that I intentionally do to make her practice patience even at age three. So when we sit down to eat a meal, I make her wait till everyone is at the table. She doesn't get to start when mommy's not there yet. Um, And even though it causes some havoc in that particular meal, she wants to start, she's frustrated. Doing that on a daily basis helps to train her that you have to wait to get things you want. Um, And you do that because other people matter. Um, and that it's not just about you. So I think in those little ways, we can start even at an early age to help train people that waiting is a part of life. And the irony is that you're learning patience while trying to teach her. Yeah, so for (laughs) sure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show, talking about this. Tired of waiting. We're talking about patience. There's a study out of Britain that just points out the the short period of time it takes for people in 2019 to begin getting a little anxious when they have to wait for something. Uh, on the line, joining us, Dr. Sarah Schnitker from Baylor University, a patience expert, which again, I, I got to get that on my resume at some point. I got to work on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about technology just before the break. And if people don't have to, and, and you, obviously you've got a three-year-old and you're working at trying to teach patients, I'm not sure everybody is putting the same effort in. I hope maybe, but I'm not necessarily going to go there. Um, if our gadgets that we are relying so heavily upon don't teach us these things, and if we're not being taught these things necessarily, does it mean then that when the time comes that we have to have patients, we just don't have the tools to do it? Is that what's going on? You know, for some people, I think, meaning there are programs that are being implemented in schools um, around socio-emotional learning um, and trying to teach skills like patience and how to regulate emotions that I think are um, becoming more and more popular in our education system. Um, I think those are a good combat against the technology uh, effect we have going on. Um, But I think it is a concern that we are going to suffer some negative effects over time if we don't do something as a culture um, to really start to teach patients. Well, I mean, that's that's the bigger thing because it's one thing to say, oh, you know what, I was really upset because my phone didn't download a program within five seconds, and that's fine and that's just ridiculous. But I would think that if we don't have patients from something little like this, it can lead to bigger ramifications if we're not willing to wait as a rule for things, if we need the immediate gratification, that, that can open the door to some problems. Exactly. And, you know, with our research on patients, we find there's three types. There's the daily hassles patients, which the study we're talking about really was looking at. Um, but the two other types of patients are life hardships patients. So how do you deal with an illness or a difficult circumstance or poverty or something of that sort? And also interpersonal patients. How are you patient with other people? And with those life hardship and interpersonal patients, we find if you lack those, that has a negative impact on your well-being and your interpersonal relationships. Um, So by building patients with the daily hassles, it can help you 
be prepared <laughs> when you have something big that comes along um, and you need to know what to do. I, so it's I, good to practice. I get the day-by-day patience issue that we have to deal with, and I certainly understand the relationship patience, and I think most people can. But to talk about the life hardships for another one, because it, you talk about like an illness or something like that, or poverty. How, how does that apply in the patient's world? So we had a study we just published this year um, where we're looking at people who are hospitalized for mental illness. Um, so we're in a psychiatric inpatient unit. And these are people who will deal with depression, um, suicidality, anxiety, probably for their whole lives. So this is the mental illness they have that's probably not going to be completely cured. Um, and it's something they have to continually deal with long term. And so by having this developing this life hardship patients, we found that that was able to help them improve their outcomes and take advantage of treatment to realize it's okay to have this suffering um, and that I can withstand this and I can continue to wait out, um, even if this might not disappear in my lifetime. Um, so kind of a waiting with wait, rather than waiting for. Um, so are so patience and acceptance interchangeable words then? I think they're very closely related. Um, but I think the small difference is that patience is not just resignation. Um, in some of our studies, we find that people, when they're patients, they're still sticking with the goal. It's not just throwing up your hands and saying, I give up. And we find that patience actually facilitates goal pursuit. Um, so you actually will try harder and invest when you can if you're patient. We only have a few seconds here, so I want to just get to one more thing, and that is can you, if you are not a patient person, you're an adult, you've got kids, you are not you, you've got the three-year-old that you are training properly, but let's say someone else has not gone, they don't have the same level of patience. Can you teach your kids patience if you're not patient? It's going to be tough. You probably need to start with yourself. <laughs> start by developing your own habits of patience. Think about things differently. Try to build that skill and develop a bigger purpose of why this matters. I think if you start with yourself as a parent, it will be a whole lot easier to start it with your child um, after you work on yourself first. It is, it is a fascinating topic. It's a little concerning, but it's a fascinating topic. Dr. Sarah Schnitker uh, from Baylor University, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for yeah, doing this. it's wonderful to join you. Uh, yeah, think, think of how that patience teaching is going to work if you're not patience. Telling your kid to be patient, like she says, and wait for dinner. And they don't, you go, well, and you just lose your mind because they're not willing to do it. That, I don't know that, like, it becomes a very difficult thing. Uh, by the way, the report, this one, this one I found funny also. Like, all these numbers were crazy about how few seconds and everything people were willing to wait for stuff. The, the amount of time people were willing to wait for their order to arrive at a restaurant, even a really lovely restaurant, 14 minutes. That was the extent of time your food could take before you started to lose it. And I'm thinking, wait, there are some restaurants where, you know, nice restaurants, they can't make the food in 14 minutes. It's not even a practical impatience. I mean, McDonald's is one thing. If you're, if you're waiting 14 minutes at McDonald's, I got it. But if you're out somewhere getting a lovely meal that some chef is making for you and you're losing it at him in 14 minutes, I don't know. Ben is rapidly waving his hand over his head here telling me to wrap it up. He is becoming impatient as we speak. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Graham McKay, editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator. Bill Kelly and I last hour, Graham, were talking and we both agreed you are the best editorial cartoonist in Canada. So there's that going for you. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say that, Scott. But um, 
uh, I'm blushing right now. Well, that's okay. You can blush because it's true. Uh, and, and I'll say this again with you on the phone blushing, and I said it last hour again, Bill and I were talking. People in Hamilton, I don't know. They don't know. I don't know how much they look around to see other editorial cartoonists. They don't know how good we have it here to have someone as good as you doing it. Anyway, you can stop blushing. Um, <laughs> it is federal election time. That's why I want to have you on. We did this last federal election. Because this, am I correct that for an editorial cartoonist, this is the, this is the best time of year? This is like Christmas for you guys? Well, yes. Um, or is it just so much pressure that it's actually worse? Well, um, I tend to think that we're always in campaign mode. So at least we are under the whole social media world that we live in now. So it's different now than, say, it was 10 years ago. Um, it, it's not for whatever reason, maybe because I've been in this business for so long, I'm just not feeling the enthusiasm that I usually feel coming into this election. Don't ask me why. I'm, I'm, I'm just theorizing that it has something to do with this nonstop campaign thing that we, we we're into when you go That's on the true. social media. That's true. Although the difference, I guess now, and part of the reason I wonder about y- y- your position on this is a, when it's not the election campaign time, it is only the political people, I think, who are really paying that close attention. Now you would think that it's going to be yeah. way, a way bigger audience for what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, obviously now um, the, the partisanship will start to really uh, build up now. Come on. Uh, <laughs> of course. It will, but, and that's sort of the nauseating part that we have to deal with all the time now. But I, I should... I mean, a lot of your listeners probably aren't even on social media, so um, I, I guess if you're in the media, you you do pay attention to that. But yeah, obviously now it, we're going into hyperdrive. This is a time when we're supposed to decide, you know, should we continue with the current government or should we look to alternatives? And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that I can help, help uh, sway people's opinions with my cartoons. So does that mean, though, that if everyone's in hyperdrive and everyone's paying hyper attention, you obviously don't point fingers or poke fun at all the candidates every single day. Some One day it may be Trudeau, one day it may be Sheer, one day it may be Singh, all these ones. But every day when you poke fun at somebody's candidate, mm-hmm. do you hear from them? Are people more on edge now to, to make sure you're exactly fair and you've poked fun at Singh as many times as Trudeau and on and on? I, I, I would hope that people can't tell what my political persuasion is. I, I don't even know. I'm going to this, there's a side of me that's a political cartoonist, and there's a side of me as a voter just like you and me and everyone else out there in CHML world. I'm, I'm trying to figure out and be as fair as possible. I'm going after the powers, and I'm, I'm looking for gas that happen. And I'm trying to separate the voter in me from the satirist, and I'm whether it's the person that I'm sort of be, sort of think I'm going to mark my X next to, or the party anyway. I'm I have to just remove myself from that and just go after uh, the gas and the goofballs um, that that come up during an election because we're in that period of time when you're going to have the uh, politicians do good speeches and make good announcements, and then there's going to be the flops. And uh, Well, they, they're talking nonstop all day. You're bound to have stupid stuff said. 
Absolutely, and I'm at the ready for for whenever that happens. Well, the, when I for, I think it was the first day I was in journalism school. It was it was near the beginning. It might have been the first day. It might have been the first week. I don't know. But they said something that's always stuck with me, and I think it applies perfectly to what you do. And that was they said the purpose of journalism, and I'm going to translate it to the purpose of editorial cartooning, is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Exactly. Yeah. And, and um, you know, some people don't have a sense of humor and some people can't take that kind of stuff into them. I was like, well, I, who cares? We, you know, you're, we don't, we're not really yeah. doing this for you. Yeah. So, so naturally the people that have the power, whether it's Justin Trudeau or, or Doug Ford, they're going to be the first ones that I point my spear at. Um, and, and when I do, I often get, you know, the partisans come in and say, well, why aren't you like going after Sheer or, you know, Singh or whoever? Uh, why why are you always going after Trudeau? Well, I, I don't tend to always go after him, but, you know, the opposition leaders are waiting to become prime minister as well. So when they really fall on their face, I'm, I'm going to go after them as well. And I do recall, you've been doing this for a while, I do recall that several years ago, Stephen Harper got more than his fair share. No, for sure. So yeah. it, it's, not, uh, it, it's not picking on one or the other. All right, I want to go through these because you've got, I mean, there's really four, but six... You may not even know two of them really very well, but six main <laughs> candidates. And I want to go through what people can look for because you have a unique perspective. You have the unique ability to look at a person and you have to do this because you're a cartoonist and find the thing that is the dominant feature or the thing that you're going to play with that makes them, you know, you can have fun with it when you're drawing it, but people still recognize it, but it gets exaggerated. Right. Um, why don't we start? We'll start at the bottom. We'll start from the bottom up here. Um <laughs> Yves Francois Blanchet of the Bloc Québécois. Do you even know what he looks like? Let's pass on him. He kind of looks like know. he kind of looks like Prince Harry. That? He looks a little like Prince Harry, uh, only uh, way more angry. <laughs> right. <laughs> which which right. kind of fits. Well, you know, and, and this is it's I think a lot of people are sort of surprised we have a Bloc Québécois leader around. I mean, I think Gilles Duceppe is is still fresh in our memories, and he was uh, a, a very fun character to draw. And, of course, he was made famous by... The Cheese Factory. With the Cheese Factory um, plastic (laughs) hat that he would wear. The the hairnet. And that that happened happened way back in, like, 2004, and that stuck with him all the way up to, uh, I guess, was it the last election he was... That was his last election? But anyway, that stuck with him for uh, 10 years or so, and all the cartoonists kind of latched onto that. He could not in his life have possibly done anything else to get more attention and become more familiar to Canadians than to wear that lab coat and hairnet in the cheese factory among oh, the yeah. Kurds. I know, and uh, and he knew it too, because we, uh, I guess, uh, we had a, a convention. The cartoonists actually get together for uh, for conventions where we... Uh, wax politically over our profession. And uh, we usually have a politician come by, and Gilles Duceppe was there. And <laughs> as he was speaking, we we actually played a gag on him. Uh, he was speaking to us, and he had a you know that podium and everything, and we were at the, in the audience. And someone beforehand gave us all a cheese factory uh, <laughs> hairnet. So as he was speaking, we suddenly all took these things out of our pocket and put it in our heads. And uh, he, it, it caught him off guard, but he, he was a good sport about it. And, he, and, and uh, I think we got a group photo with him, actually. He was the only one in the group that wasn't wearing a cheese hat. So uh, When the cartoonists all get together, by the way, we're going to get back to the politicians, but one question yeah. about this. When the, when the cartoonists all get together, editorial cartoonists, 
do they ever mock the cartoonists who draw the cartoons that are intentionally not to be funny, but to wring emotion out of people with like clouds of angels and the pearly gates and, and other things? Like, do, do, do you take, do you poke fun at some of these cartoonists at times? Well, well, we're Canadian, so we're very polite, but then, you know, when the beer and the alcohol starts to, to run, then... I think their their real opinions come out. Yeah, and we we razz each other. All right, that's that's good. They got to know. People have to know when they do those ones. The I'm going to make everyone weep cartoons. That's that's not a cartoon. No, those I like to call them Hallmark card uh, <laughs> illustrations. But, uh, I'm, I'm not good at that. Some other cartoonists are good for that, and you know what? They're very popular. And, they are very uh, popular. I've heard the other reference to them as sad tire. <laughs> Who came up with that? I don't know. Maybe you. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, okay. We move along from Yves-Francois Blanchet, who probably will not appear in any editorial cartoons outside of Quebec this year, unless he wears a hairnet or does something else. I don't know. He, he does look like Prince Harry though. Just saying. I'll, I'll, I'll check next time. Uh, next up, also from Quebec, Maxime Bernier. Oh yeah. Okay. So when you're sitting down to draw Maxime Bernier, what is the identi- the primary identifying feature? He's got a huge nose. He's got a huge nose, and he's got a big Mulroney style chin. He does too. Now that you look at him, yes. And uh, he's, you know, he's been around for a long time. I've been drawing him probably longer than any other of the leaders. So, you know, you may re- recall he was uh, a Harper. Uh, I think he was the Minister of Defense way back when Harper was first Prime Minister in his first cabinet. And of course, he brought that uh, the, the biker babe to uh, the, the cabinet meeting, and she was very buxom. And everyone was looking at, at, at her, and it sort of uh, began the whole impression of Bernier being uh, a bit of a... Uh, a ladies' uh, man? A little, I, I don't know if, if that... A very interesting member of the cabinet, and we kept our eyes on him. And uh, he didn't last very long in cabinet, actually. What was, um, the, uh, what was the name of the uh, Christopher Walken character on Saturday Night Live? The, uh, the Continental. He became... Maxime Bernier became the Continental. Some champagne with that. Um, oh, right, right. Remember uh, that one? I, I, I'm, vaguely. I'm vaguely recalling that, but I'm getting mixed up with the Will Ferrell uh, and, and the, the Sheen guy. Uh, okay, <laughs> next up, and I would not have thought that we would have been saying this guy next up, but the polls say in fourth place, not in third anymore, in fourth place is Jugmeet Singh. Mm-hmm. Okay, now there is the obvious. He's got a big beard uh, yep. and he's got a turban. That sets him apart from everyone else. Mm-hmm. How, though... We live in very delicate times, very politically correct times. How do you draw? How do you cartoon? How do you, because everyone, again, everyone has something that you identify and you exaggerate it. How do you exaggerate that without being offensive? Because some people would be offended if you were to exaggerate the turban or the beard. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. It definitely is tricky. Um, and it's taken a while for, uh, I know some of the first few drawings I did of him, I got flack from some of his supporters because I, I didn't draw the, the skin dark enough. And some people thought I was offensive in how I drew the turban or, or whatever. But this tends to happen with some of the uh, politicians, especially some that are, uh, you know, the, the ethnic, obvious traits. Uh, it happened with um, Barack Obama, if you recall, when he first became uh, on, on the scene as a Democrat nominee, people uh, were pointing out how uh, his lips were made with a purple tone, and that, that sort of offended people. But over time, 
you know, it's almost like an instructive thing that happens even with the, the fans. And, and the fans of, of, of Singh now realize that with leadership comes satire. And it's become a lot easier since uh, at one time when I was sort of uh, land-based for, for making him look too white, I guess. Well, the difficulty is, though, as I say, that if you you... You have to be careful how you do this, but if you don't include them in the satire, you're almost then treating it differently, like because of their yeah. religion or whatever else, yeah. that they are now in a different class. And I don't mean class of people. I mean, a, like a protected group. It, it it changes the dynamic. If you're going to be in this, you have to be able to be satirized. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to treat them all equally. I mean, I, I satirize all of them uh, from, from Elizabeth May all the way up to Justin Trudeau. So... You know, uh, Jagmeet Singh is, is part of that gang, and um, yeah, people can complain, but you know, he's he's the leader. He he could eventually become our prime minister. So, uh, well, satire doesn't die. Well, when Jagmeet Singh becomes prime minister. I I think that's a pretty safe bet that that's not happening. But nonetheless, I get your point. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth May in third place. Now, see, Elizabeth May, to me, would be the most difficult of the candidates, the leaders to draw, because she, I look at the picture and she is pretty normal looking overall, pretty average in appearance. Mm-hmm. Nothing stands out. What stands out for Elizabeth May? The glasses? Uh, there's the glasses. Um, she has an interesting mouth. Uh, if you look at her, she shows a lot of gum, uh, stumpy teeth. Uh, she's got, she's got a terrific smile and, um, uh, and uh, that's usually the, the first thing that has to be uh, emphasized. And then there's the glasses, and then she she has a certain angle to her face. Uh, you, my dad was a de- was a dentist, so I, I, I have like a, a special eye on, on jawlines. That sort of thing. <laughs> she has a very unique jawline. Uh, and so she's been around for a long time as well. So she's, she's also, she can be very challenging because she's also, um, she's, she's changed her hair and I got to figure out well, what's her hair like now. And she's also, she also used to be very much on the heavy side, um, years ago. Now she's much, uh, um, thinner. And so I got to keep that in mind. There's a, there's uh, a she, bit of a Hillary Clinton thing going on here in a weird kind of way. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, but you know that's the other thing, and I, I know I've spoken to you on air about this as well. There's a, it's tricky in the whole gender thing. You got to be very careful uh, when you're drawing women as opposed to men, and uh, it, it's something that you know. In what way? All in what way? Uh, you can make men as ugly as you want, and no one complains. Honestly. Yeah, you know what? There's no equality in that. Uh, you can't be too nasty to the women. And I've had this discussion with other cartoonists, and they agree. And uh, and I, I sort of I, I feel it when I when I'm I, um, it's, it's the foreign minister uh, uh, Christopher Phelan. I've, mm. I've been challenged drawing her, and it's been pointed out that I make her look like a witch. And it it uh, it certainly affects the way and influences the way I draw her going forward. And I haven't quite mastered drawing her. And the same way it goes with uh, Elizabeth May. She is a, she's probably the most challenging of the federal leaders to draw. You don't have any problem drawing Andrew Shear, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and when you do, and I hope this is a compliment, uh, there is a certainly a howdy doody esque kind of quality to him when you put him on paper. There is, and 
unfortunately, some of the younger generations don't know who the heck Howdy Doody is. Fair enough. So, um, Just look other, at your look at your cartoon, and they'll get a good idea. Uh, exactly. Other parallels of it may do uh, Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine. That would be a good one. Um, but yeah, the Howdy Doody thing is a dead ringer, and um, I that that face comes into mind whenever I draw Shear. It's I just can't help myself. He's got those dimples. The dimples in his cheeks are the. He, we've never had a prime minister with deeper dimples in his face <laughs> than Andrew Shear. Is that is that a a good quality for a cartoonist? I mean, it's it's just an extra line, right? Well, it is. It's two lines, but. The guy is always smiling. He's like, he, and I, I, I've observed this. If you watch the guy, and I, I think the, his advisors have probably told him, you know what, figure out how you can get rid of those dimples. Because, you know, if you're prime minister, you're declaring war on a country. You can't have those dimples showing. It's just That's right. You've got to have temporary dimples. They can pull them out on happy happy times, and then you get some sort of stucco or something to put in there. A, a, stimple, a, stimple, a dimple... Prosthetic or something. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. All right. Maybe some putty will do it. I don't know. So, is the are the dimples then the thing for Andrew Shear? That's the number yes. one. Okay. They are, and and the bug eyes. The bug eyes uh, are another thing. He's got big blue eyes that stick out. Okay. Now we get to our prime minister. Uh, I have noticed over the term of his <laughs> time in government, and even a little bit before then, that. Uh, Justin Trudeau started out somewhat normal looking in your cartoons, but he has gotten to the point now where his nose is massive. Has his yeah. nose grown or has it only been seen to have grown? Mm, there could be that. Uh, I, I can't help myself. It's, it's a part of my brain that starts to to extend certain appendages of, of <laughs> facial features. Oh, facial features. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, he's he's a great guy to draw. He's, I guess, the word is imperious for that guy. I mean, he's, and I, and I've talked to you about this. I I, I wonder why we don't have um, impressionists like a Rich Little uh, with uh, this hour's twenty two minutes because that guy. There's so many uh, great qualities of that guy in his character and the way he presents himself that it, it is. There's so much ridicule you could do with that guy. But for whatever reason, you know, Alec Baldwin is the guy that, that makes fun of Trump. And they've had other, uh, we've, we've had our own comedians on, on um, uh, the air farce and Conco or whatever. Uh, even at this hour is 22 minutes, has, has done a very good job of mocking um, prime ministers in the past. But for whatever reason, we're without like a, a great rich little kind of impressionist. And it shouldn't be hard because, I mean, I, no. I was watching, there's a commercial that he that people have probably seen, a TV commercial now where he's standing on a bus. And yeah. it's a perfect example of the Justin Trudeau delivery where his long breaks between his sentences for effect and at the end, you bring it down to a whisper. Yeah. He, he, he drew, and it's very serious because you're very feeling. You're, you're, he's got so much feeling that you can almost feel his feeling. Yeah, and I, I, I always thought, you know, from the beginning, you know, he became prime minister, and, he, and he'd do the, the cadence in his voice and everything like that when, when he spoke about Canadians, and and uh, this is the way that we're going to do things. <laughs> it, I thought it would easily grate on Canadians' uh, ears, but they, it seems not to have, it doesn't really bug people the way that it bugs me. 
Well, we have uh, we have one great impression that I've seen of Jugmeet Singh by uh, what's his name on this hour is twenty two minutes. Oh, uh, right, Sean Majumber. Yeah. yeah, Sean Majumber, who did a fantastic version of him at one time, and that you're right. That's uh, that's kind of where it ends. We we are we're not a we're a very funny people. We put all the comedians in California in, in Hollywood, except we have none of them at home anymore. I guess to uh, yeah to do yeah. stuff. Uh, anyway, you will be able to see all of Graham's work uh, in the Spectator. He'll be doing. I'm guessing of the next forty days, thirty nine of them are going to be federal election stuff. Um, you'll be able to, so all the stuff you've heard here, go look for it in the paper when you look at the editorial cartoons. He's also on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's a bunch. What's your website? Uh, it's MackayCartoons.net. M-A-C-K-A-Y cartoons.net. Best editorial cartoonist in Canada. Go enjoy him. Uh, Graham, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Scott. That is, uh, there you go. There's your, uh, your breakdown of what to look for and who is easy to draw and who isn't. You may not see a lot of Elizabeth May because she's really hard to draw, apparently. And because she's not going to be prime minister. But besides that, that's, uh, you know, that's the other reason. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.